Hey guys, this is Ken. I want to wish you a Merry Christmas season and let you know that Minerva and I are taking a couple of weeks off. So what we are going to do is not leave you hanging. We're going to uh, give you this special policebackground.net legacy episode from 2009. I was doing podcasts way before podcasts were a thing. And so this is going way back. This uh, episode that we're uh, sending to you right now is with uh, Ben Kelly from the Seattle Police Department, who ended the life of cop killer Maurice Clemens uh, back in 2009. So we hope you enjoy this episode and that you are having a great holiday season and uh, we will talk to you in a few weeks podcasting live from the offices of policebackground.net this is the police applicant podcast with your host ken royball On November 29, 2009, at 8.15 in the morning, a man walked into a coffee shop and opened fire, killing four Lakewood, Washington police officers. The murders of the officers was described as an execution. The killer was identified as Paroli Maurice Clemens. A two-day manhunt for Clemens began. On December 1, 2009, Seattle police officer Ben Kelly was on patrol when he was approached from behind by Clemens. Officer Kelly walked away from a confrontation with Maurice Clemens. Clemens lay dead in the street. In this special edition policebackground.net interview, Officer Ben Kelly shares his story of how he ended the life of a cop killer. PB.net podcast. My name's John. I'm a police officer in Southern California. I am joined by my colleague Enzo. Hello, Enzo. Hey, sir. Uh, let me just take a moment to say that Enzo and I, are, we're not using our last names or identifying the department we work for in order to avoid any sort of impression that we're speaking for our department. But Ken, uh, the owner of PB.net, will vouch for us that we are both members of his site and sworn police officers and not a couple of mall cops. So uh, there you go. Now we got that out of the way. I want to uh, welcome Officer Ben Kelly from the Seattle Police Department. As you heard in the introduction, Officer Kelly shot and killed cop killer Maurice Clemens, who had been responsible for the murders of four Lakewood, Washington police officers just a few days before. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Ben. Hey, thank you very much and uh, glad to be here. Great. Uh, now, before we get into the nuts and bolts of uh, what happened during your encounter with Maurice Clemens, I'd like to touch briefly onto your background. As you know, uh, PB.net is a website geared towards people who are applying to be law enforcement officers. So I'd like to talk a little bit about you personally. Um, first of all, what was your background before becoming a police officer? Was this something, was this your, uh, your first real job or was this a, a career change? It was uh, my first real job in many ways. I mean, I was in the military back in the, the late 80s, early 90s, and uh, went to Desert Storm and all uh, that. And when I got out of the military, law enforcement seemed like a very natural progression. Um, so I actually applied uh, right out of the military back in, like, 1994 and didn't really, I didn't get hired. I made it through the hiring process, but never got hired. And the reason they told me that I wasn't hired is because they said they wanted something to to show that I'd actually thought about this and didn't just didn't wake up one morning and say, I want to be a cop. So they suggested I go and get some education. So honestly, over the next uh, 10 years, I ended up uh, going to college uh, off and on and ended up with a master's degree in psychology um, before getting hired on with the Washington State Gambling Commission uh, prior to even joining Seattle. 
So uh, how many how many agencies did you apply with? Um, probably all totaled uh, at least four. Um, you know, I I really wanted to work Seattle simply because it was a large metropolitan market, and uh, that's where my interests lie. Uh, but I, yeah, I mean, the hiring process is daunting and frustrating at times, and you know, not to put all my eggs into one basket, I applied with a couple different agencies and like I said ended up getting hired on with the Washington State Gambling Commission which was a uh, you know quasi law enforcement type uh, agency that put you through the police academy. Okay, okay. So uh it, it took you a, a while you from what I'm understanding it took you a while from the time you first applied until the time you were actually made it onto the the Seattle Police Department. Correct. I mean, uh, eventually, I mean, it pretty much took me 10 years, not that I was applying all those 10 years, but I, it, I certainly applied multiple times. So for some of the, the members of our, our website who may be listening to this, um, I think that's kind of serves as a little bit of encouragement. I know we've got a lot of people who've been been through the ringer uh, in the hiring process. So to just to know that you can keep plugging away, and even even if it takes ten years, that's uh, I think that serves as a little bit of encouragement for some of the um, some of the people on our site. Uh, now, Absolutely. get after you, uh, you got hired from uh, in Seattle. What year did you get hired in in Seattle? Um, I went through the hiring process uh, for the last time in 2004 and got hired on in 2005. Okay, and so you were—I take you said you were in Desert Storm, so you were a little bit older uh, going through the academy. Yet. Yeah, um, you know, I, I guess I was pr- on the older side, but you know, not that far off of average for whatever reasons. Uh, it seems like lately police departments have taken to hiring applicants with some life experience. So yeah. while you still had some applicants still in, or people going through the academy in their early 20s, it seemed like probably about the average age was, you know, 30, maybe even early 30s. Yeah, I think uh, that was probably that was my experience and probably you too, Endo. Yeah, I was I was in my early 30s when I was uh, going through the academy. Yeah, yeah, me too. So um, now you you were in the military before, uh, so this this you know probably didn't. Uh, affect you as much as it might somebody else, but going through the police academy, being in that, um, I know for me, never having been in the military, it was a, it was a pretty, it was a, it was a big uh, adjustment to get used to. Um, did you, did it change you going through the academy? Did it change you in any way, or do you, did you see yourself as sort of the same type of person when you, when you came out as, as when you went in? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously I learned things um, and came out the better for it, but in, in the larger sense, it, the police academy didn't really change me. I kind of equated it to, you know, kind of like a boot camp in a community college kind of atmosphere. And, uh, yeah. you know, seeing that I already had a college degree, the, the academic portion of it wasn't that strenuous for me. And uh, the fact that I had a military background, the uh, the parent militaristic aspect of it was, you know, I was fully aware and uh, well adjusted to that as well. Cool. Um, so same question, but now regarding uh, your first year, like your probationary year, your, I don't know what you call it in Seattle, your rookie year um, when you're in field training, the, the first year in the field, I know for me, at least I, I really look at the world very differently than I did before I started working the streets as a police officer. Did you, did you have that same sort of experience? Oh, yeah. I mean, the FTO and probationary period uh, was kind of an eye-opening experience. Uh, Is it a whole year long? Uh, yeah, you're on probation for a period of one year. Um, you're on FTO, you know, like an actual FTO where you're sitting there riding in a car with a field training officer. That's about three and a half months of the first year. And then for that rest of the time that you're on probation, you know, you have somebody doing uh, observation reports on you, but you're riding around on yourself and it's, you know, not as uh, in your face uh, field training officer, but still someone's kind of shadowing you in many respects. And then those first three and a half months, are they doing daily ratings on you? Because like with our department, uh, they'll do a daily and a weekly entry on all of the probationers and basically um, rate the officer's performance on daily tasks uh, 
at the end of each day through a daily report that the FTO completes. And then at the end of each week, um, they can either provide you with uh, a report that the FTO completes that is positive or that is dissatisfactory. And uh, do they do something similar like that in your department? Yeah, very similar. Uh, you know, every day you get daily observation reports. So every every day that you're working the job, you're getting uh, uh, some feedback and a piece of paper rating or grading your performance. Um, and then I believe every week the same thing where the officer is writing a weekly report kind of uh, summing up the week that you had and reviewing it with a sergeant. Um, and, you know, and at any point in time in the process, they could kind of unplug you and kind of put you into a remedial field training program. Um, but for the first three and a half, while you're on the FTO, the first three and a half months is, yes, daily observation reports and weekly reports. And then after you get off that first three and a half months, it was basically an alternate weekly is what they called it. So every other week you were getting an observation report detailing what you had done over the previous two weeks and, you know, grading your performance. Did you remain with the same training officer for those uh, first three and a half months or did you uh, go from one training officer to another? If you did, what was the frequency that you changed uh, training officers? Uh, the way Seattle does it is uh, – Basically, each you do one month with one training officer, um, and then another a separate month with the second, um, and then you do another month with a third one. So three different training officers uh, changing every month, and then at the end of that three months, you would switch back to your original training officer, the one that you started with, and he would complete what we call a checkoff. Um, basically, where he doesn't exist, he's in civilian clothes, you're running everything, and you just have to pretend like he's not even there, and he checks you off those final two weeks, and um, barring some sort of, uh, you know, failure on our part, uh, at that point, you would graduate into the uh, the next phase of FTO or probation. Okay, so... Uh Let's um now we covered your covered your background a little bit. Let's get into the uh the the nuts and bolts of uh your the whole reason we're we're interviewing you cuz uh we don't just randomly interview Seattle police officers every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. But let's start a, a few days before your encounter with Maurice Clemens. Uh where were you and what were you doing when you first heard about the the four Lakewood officers who had been shot? Well, actually, it was my weekend, so I was off, and I worked the night shift, so I was asleep um, when everything happened down down in Lakewood. And so I wake up, and I just check my phone, and my phone had blown up while I was asleep. I mean, there was tons of messages and phone calls and stuff like that. And uh, the first message that I received was from a good friend, and all it said was, Oh, Ben, please be careful. And I'm like, Okay, what just happened? Um, and, you know, providing a little more background, just a month prior to this, we had a Seattle officer and a trainee ambushed by an individual that just wanted to kill cops. And basically he just drove up to a police car with the, the trainee and the FTO officer and shot a high-powered rifle into their car, killing the training officer. Um, so, I mean, that had just happened. So I was a little concerned that, you know, somebody else was kind of picking up where this guy left off and was now uh, assassinating other Seattle police officers. So I mean, it wasn't the same guy, though, right? It was not the same guy. Two completely separate um, people operating in the same geographical area and same general time frame that just wanted to kill cops. Okay. And now how, how far is Lakewood from Seattle? Uh, you know, it's about uh, 40 to 50 miles in that neighborhood. Okay. South. It's, Lakewood is actually down right outside of Tacoma. Okay. And Tacoma and Seattle being the largest cities uh, in Washington state. Okay. Is it, is it considered to be, um, a rougher neighborhood or just a suburb that's usually calm and quiet? What What's the area like in Lakewood? Lakewood is essentially, it's a suburb of Tacoma, 
but it's also borders military bases. So, I mean, it's, it's, it has certain suburbia qualities to it, but it also kind of has the, the rougher edges that uh, kind of go along with military life. So, I mean, it's, it's really eclectic, and they have a tendency to keep themselves fairly busy down there. Huh. And, uh, fact, oh, sorry, go ahead. Fact, yeah, Lakewood was actually a very recent department. They were very new. They, they just incorporated back in, I believe it was 2004. Prior to that, they, were, they fell under uh, Tacoma, so they were all patrolled by Tacoma police or Pierce County, one or the other. Now, the, the area that these, these officers were uh, uh, ambushed in, they were, from what I understand, they were basically just in a coffee shop. Uh, a couple of them, might have, I think, were on their laptops. Um, just a, a typical day, they weren't really expecting to be encountering armed suspects in, in the coffee shop. Is, is, that, is that what I understand? Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. Um, they were just outside the military base down there, the Joint Base Lewis-McChord, um, literally just across the street from it. And they were, they had just all met in the coffee shop to kind of go over a call. They had a, a use of force and they had some paperwork that they had to go over and they were screening uh, various things with their sergeant. And that's what they were meeting in the coffee shop for, certainly not responding to anything. And they were just there to do uh, follow-up work, essentially. And now, uh, as far as Clemens is concerned, was did these four officers have any sort of interaction with him previously, or was was did he just said, I'm going to kill some cops, and he, and he found them? Yeah, no, he had no interaction whatsoever with anybody in Lakewood Police Department, as far as anybody can tell. Uh, Clemens just, uh, he felt all the problems in his life was due to police officers, and he decided he was going to exact a little bit of revenge for how his life had turned out. And he felt that police officers in general was the target. Okay. Just to talk a little bit about it, you know, the tactics of meeting at a coffee shop and, and uh, going over uses of force and having laptops out in a public area and, and not really having your direct attention uh, being paid to your surroundings. Has that changed? Do you know, has that tactic changed in terms of uh, officers meeting with their supervisors in a public place? Were they now stick to meeting in uh, in a station house or precinct so that they can avoid this type of scenario from happening again? Yeah, I think uh, the events of late 2009 for the area certainly uh, made police officers kind of uh, more aware of there is no safe place unless you're actually sitting in the in the precinct. And even then, you know, that's not 100%. Right. So, yeah, I think it, it made most officers and most supervisors extremely aware that, you know, if there's anything to be done where you can't give your full attention to your surroundings, that it's probably best to find the safest place for you to do that as opposed to just, you know, being out in public. Right. So, so Ben, obviously, you know, you're always vigilant, you know, when you're out on patrol, but you must have well first of all you said lakewood's 50 miles away from seattle did they have any reason to believe that clemens was going to be traveling to the the seattle area at the time yeah actually um clemens was identified as the suspect very early on and they had a confirmed sighting of Clemens in Seattle. Now, they knew that he was being moved around by various people and he was going to various places and he was trying to use friends and families as, you know, a base for support and logistics and whatnot. Um, so he, they knew that he was reaching out to family. Uh, his family was identified as quickly as possible of where he may possibly go and they had several targets in the city of Seattle. And a matter of fact, uh, he had contacted an aunt in Seattle, and she decided that she didn't want any part of him and actually went to the police station, uh, the nearest police station in Seattle, and told them, listen, Maurice Clemens is coming to my house. He's on his way. And so they immediately sent units over there to kind of get eyes on the house. And just as the first unit 
was pulling up into the neighborhood of the house. They saw a vehicle stop real quick. Somebody got out and the vehicle drove away. Um, since they were the only unit there at the time, they decided to stop the car um, and figure out what's going on with the car. Um, Clemens was not in the car. He was, in fact, the person that got out of the car. And when they detained the driver, that's pretty much what she said. Yeah, Maurice Clemens just got out of my car. And before they could actually set up containment on the house, he was able to uh, basically slip, slip out of the neighborhood and just find another hidey hole. Okay. So he, this wasn't just a random, you know, Oh, I th- we think he might be in the area. You had seen, I mean, officers had seen him and they knew he was around. So when you were out on patrol that night, mm-hmm. uh, you knew that this guy was out and about somewhere. So, uh, did you, did you find yourself acting differently, uh, doing anything differently? You're you, obviously your, um, your senses are, are heightened, but, uh, First of all, do you guys work with partners or do you work by yourselves? Generally, you're by yourself um, due to, you know, staffing levels. Uh, People are, if they want to partner up, they can certainly partner up. Uh, But generally speaking, it's pretty hard to always ride two-man cars. Okay, so you're... uh, Because of staffing levels. Okay, so you're out there cruising around by yourself, um, as you normally are, are you doing anything differently? Are you are you um, uh, patrolling different areas? Or just talk about what what's going through your mind this these nights that you know Clemens is in the area. Okay. Well, okay. So the thirtieth was my first night back on patrol after all this kicked off. So I mean, it's like thirty two, thirty three hours later. Um, they that whole thing going on at the aunt's house where they thought they had him contained, that was all going on the previous night. And it wasn't until the next morning that they figured out that he wasn't there, that somehow he had slipped out of the area undetected. Um, so when I come back to work on the 30th on my, what would be my Monday, um, in the work week, you know, we are briefed in roll call, um, essentially by our captain and our sergeant that, okay, Maurice Clemens is, Definitely, it's a confirmed sighting. He's in the city somewhere. We don't know where he is, but we do know that he is wounded and that he is armed with a uh, duty weapon of one of the slain Lakewood officers. How, how did they know he was wounded? Because uh, they, they had talked, obviously, they had detained the driver that had just dropped him off. They had started detaining friends and family that had contact with him after the shooting down in Lakewood. So they had, you know, they had very good intel on this guy. Okay. And so they knew that he had been shot um, by one of the Lakewood officers during the struggle down there. They knew that he still had one of the handguns from the Lakewood officers. He had, Clemens had already told friends and family that he's not going to be taken alive. He's not going back to prison and that basically he's going to shoot it out with any cop he comes across. So all this information is being relayed to us. Of course, they're giving us the wanted bulletins. They're passing around pictures and descriptions and everything like that. Um, So, I mean, the whole focus of that evening's roll call was Clemens. I mean, we discussed everything in great detail. uh, The sergeant that was working, he actually happens to be one of our HNT guys, and he was actually up at the scene when they... Uh, thought they had him contained in the aunt's house. So he had a lot of information for us, and, you know, he shared everything that he had. So we had pretty good intel. I felt pretty confident in who he was and what he looked like. And even during roll call, we were encouraged by sergeants, if you want to partner up with somebody tonight, please do. They they didn't make us, but they strongly encouraged it. So I decided not to partner up with anybody because I feel I'm less distracted. I can pay better attention to my surroundings if I don't have somebody in the car with me to, you know, have conversation with. I get very distracted in conversation. So I felt for me, for me to be my most aware that I needed to be by myself. Being that you had um, good intel and you knew, you know, had a name suspect, you knew who the guy was. Um, had you guys known 
what his criminal history was like. Did he have a history of uh, stealing cars and auto theft? And uh, the last part of the question would be, was there any way that did you guys know that he had stolen that car? And were you looking for that specific car that you came across? Because I know that guy reported the car stolen 1245 that morning. Um, did he see who stole the car? Was any of that playing into this? Okay. Well, I mean, the first part of the question was uh, Clemens' cr criminal history. I mean, we right. had a, a fairly good idea of it. I mean, I certainly didn't know the full extent of his criminal history. But the news media, of course, jumped all over the Arkansas um, history and the, uh, not the pardon, but the clemency that he was given. Um, I mean, all that stuff broke pretty quickly. Um, right. We were also aware that he had, um, he was in the process of being tried for various felony um, charges in Western Washington, and that basically he was looking at a third strike, and basically if he was convicted, he was going back to prison for the rest of his life. So he was um, a three-striker. Yes, and, you know, most of his criminal history was, um, like, burglaries and robberies and stuff like that. Um, he had a child rape um, and assaulting a police officer type stuff. Um, nothing specifically to auto theft. And mm -hmm. that leads us into the, to the car that I ended up finding that was a stolen vehicle. Um, there was no connection of Clemens to that vehicle whatsoever. I was pretty confident that he was not the one that stole that vehicle. Okay. Uh, what, I believe, and what others believe, um, and just in a very, our theory is he actually was able to contact someone that lives in that area. Um, he has a couple buddies that actually lived in the area where I came across him. And he had contacted one of those guys and desperately trying to get back to Tacoma. He knew that his ends in Seattle um, or his contacts in Seattle were no longer valid for him to be using or very, uh, just not, he's just, uh, basically been cut off in Seattle. So he was trying to get back home to Tacoma and he was looking for any way out of Seattle he could. And I think one of his buddies basically said, okay, I got a car for you. It's at this location. And he was actually en route to pick up that car so he could drive back to Tacoma. Okay, we we've kind of we kind of fast forward a little bit to to the stolen the, this stolen car. Just um, how, let's talk about how you uh, came upon this this stolen car. Was it reported stolen and and somebody saw it, or you're just doing out doing patrol and running license plates and you come across a a, a stolen vehicle? How how did that happen? Well, um, over the course of the night, you know, I, I wasn't out looking for Clemens aggressively or proactively or anything like that. I mean, life went on and calls came out and you had to handle the calls as usual. So through the course of the night, um, it was actually a fairly quiet night. Um, but within an hour and a half or two hours, we had reports, three separate reports of vehicles being stolen. And you know, working third watch hours, which is from basically seven o'clock at night to four o'clock in the morning, you don't get too many people reporting stolen vehicles during those times. Because generally speaking, people don't realize their car has been stolen until they wake up in the morning to go to work and they go outside and they realize, hey, my car's not here anymore. So it was odd to have, it's odd for one car to be stolen, reported stolen during third watch hours to have three of them reported stolen in a very small geographic area during a very short period of time was very unusual. So I basically was just out cruising the back streets of my beat looking for one of these three stolen vehicles. You know, I kind of went into the seedier parts of the town where the, the part of my beat where most of the crime happens. And basically I was just looking for any one of these three vehicles. And I was, you know, I was pretty sure that I wasn't going to roll across one of them rolling that if I, if I was going to find any of them, most likely, 
you know, they would have just been abandoned by at this point. Somebody just hopped in them to use uh, a, to joyride or get from point A to point B, and as soon as they got there, they were just going to ditch the vehicle. So right. essentially, I was just driving around the neighborhood looking for ditched, stolen vehicles. And I knew the plates. I knew the the vehicle descriptions. So I wasn't running like any plates or using the computer. I was just basically riding around looking for these three specific vehicles. It comes to pass that you, you come across, was it an Acura? If I, if I read right. Yeah, it, it was, a, it was an Acura. So you come, you come across this Acura, you're like, Oh, Hey, bingo. I, I scored myself or recovered stolen. So you, uh, you get out your paperwork, uh, to start, you know, doing the, uh, the recovery, and then uh, this, that's when uh, Clemens approaches you. So why don't you kind of take it from from there? Okay. Well, I mean, it starts a little bit before that, actually. Okay. I was just driving around looking for one of our stolen vehicles, and I actually passed Clemens um, out on the street, like, uh, you know, a minute before that. Of course, I had no idea who he was. Yeah. He was just walking down the street. He was wearing a hooded sweatshirt. He had the hood pulled up over his head. And he was just kind of doing, you know, what we refer to as the mope shuffle down the street. You know, mm-hmm. looking like he's probably not up to any good. I mean, it's like 2.35 in the morning. He's on a back street in, uh, in a very uh, heavy narcotics area. And, you know, anybody out walking in that area at that time is probably up to no good. But I had no reason to contact him. I mean, he was okay. just walking down the street. Um, so I drove past him and he was actually walking the same direction that I was driving. We were both heading westbound on South Kenyon street. So as I pass him, all I do is kind of note his presence and that's about it. I'm driving down the street and within a block and a half to two blocks, I come across the the silver Acura, the stolen Acura. Um, and I, it was idling on the north side of the street facing westbound it had its hood up and it was obviously running but i had actually passed the vehicle a little bit before i was like before it clicked on me okay oh there's our stolen car so as i was backing my patrol vehicle back into a position behind the stolen vehicle i kind of just took a quick look into the stolen vehicle uh felt very very confident that nobody was inside it i put an alley light on. So I got some light in there and you could, I could see pretty well into the stolen vehicle that nobody looked like it was in there. And based on the condensation levels of the windows and stuff like that, I was 99.9999% sure that nobody was inside that vehicle. So I positioned my patrol car behind the stolen vehicle and I just put out over radio what I had. I, you know, I said, Hey, I've, I've got an unoccupied stolen recovery here. I give them the plate and I give them my location. Now, what does that what does that do when you put that out? What does the rest of the precinct or division that you work do? They send an additional unit automatically, or is that just like you go in code six, or you're just on that car just to notify them? Does it generate any response? Is the question? Um, it doesn't really generate a response simply because I I had put out that it was unoccupied. Um, you know, I certainly give I. Let radio know everybody has everybody can hear the radio, so people know where I am. They know what I'm on. But an unoccupied stolen recovery is not like a priority call for us, right. where we send multiple officers. Now, I could have certainly requested another unit, um, but short of requesting another unit people are generally not just going to show up. I mean, that's right. something that you usually have to ask for, for that particular kind of call. Okay. Okay. So, uh, <clears throat> so you, you position your car behind this, the stolen, um, and you've, you've passed Clemens at this point and you, and you're aware of the presence of, of a man walking on the street, but you don't know it's him. So, uh, what, what happens next? Okay, well, as soon as I get done radioing in that I have the unoccupied stolen recovery, I look in my rearview mirror, and this individual that I had just passed, who had been walking, like I said, westbound on South Kenyon Street, he was walking on the north sidewalk of the street. I'm watching him as he's approaching me now in my rearview mirror. He's, you know, less than a half a block away at this point in time. So I'm just kind of watching him in my rearview mirror and he starts to leave the sidewalk and starts to 
cross into the street. And I'm like, okay, that's a little weird. So I'm trying to figure out now what's this guy doing. At first I'm kind of thinking, okay, he probably has warrants and he's probably, instead of passing real close to me, on the north sidewalk, since that's the side of the street the stolen vehicle was on, like maybe he's just crossing over to the other side of the street, not giving me any reason to contact him, and he just wants to steer as far away from police officers as he can. So I'm watching him, and instead of crossing over to the other side of the street, now he's just walking down the middle of the street directly towards my patrol vehicle. So now I'm like, okay, it's obvious he's not wanting to avoid me. He actually wants to contact me. And again, you know, I don't really know what's going on. It could be, you know, a guy out just looking for his dog that ran away. Or, you know, since I'm behind a stolen vehicle, he could be a suspect in this. So, you know, I'm not really sure exactly what's going on, but it's very obvious that I need to confront him as he's coming up to contact me. Okay, so so you he he's walking down the the street. Are you are are you feeling threatened at this point, or just uh, uh, more more alert? Um, not threatened by any stretch of the imagination. I'm certainly more alert. You know, this guy's definitely on my radar as far as okay. Uh, you know, I need to do something about him. If you want to go through the whole color code of you know, you're operating in yellow all the time. Um, I'm now moving into orange where it's like, okay, I've got something very specific here and I need to keep tabs on it. But okay. I was certainly not in the full alert or anything like that. Okay. Was, so okay, go he, ahead. When he was walking towards you, did he appear to be uh, injured at all? Or is he just, could you tell any of that from seeing him or no? No, no. He was walking very normally. I mean, a bit on the quick side, like he had a purpose, but he wasn't running or anything like that. He was just walking with a purpose towards my patrol vehicle and, you know, more specifically, the driver's side of my patrol vehicle. Wow. So, you know, when I first started observing him, he was, you know, less than a half a block away. And I watched him, of course, for a little bit as he came closer. So at the point that I decided that, okay, I need to get out of my patrol vehicle and and confront this individual, you know, he's probably within 15 feet of the back of my car. You know, I open the door, I step out, I turn around to start facing him, and now he's actually at the point where he's like at the rear bumper of my car, and he's continuing to walk up to me. He ha- he still hasn't looked up. He hasn't said anything. You know, he hasn't reacted in a way, like trying to get my attention. He's basically just walking up to me with his head down and walking up to me with a purpose. So by the time that he's gotten to, like, my C-pillar or, the, or my rear door, I'm actually in the process of bringing up my left hand to kind of, like, hand check or push him away from me or to prevent him from walking directly up on me. I was already starting to get that feeling of, okay, he's starting to invade my personal space kind of thing, and I don't want that. Um, And before I can actually bring my hand up, that's when he looks up for the first time. And I immediately, immediately recognize, uh uh-oh, this is Maurice Clemens. I mean, I see the mole. I mean, the mole was very distinctive on the left side of his face. And his height, weight, and everything else just matched. And had, I, had he said anything at that point? Nope. And he, he never said a word to me during the entire thing. I mean, not one peep. Okay, so so he's now he, now he's within a few feet of you. You're you you're, said so you actually had your left hand up, and you're you're pushing him. Did you actually make contact with him with his chest no. or anything like that? No, basically okay. I was kind of in the process of just raising my hand and it's at that point that he looked up and I recognized him and he gave me one of those oh crap looks where he realizes, okay, this police officer knows who I am and whatever plan that he had going through his head or however he envisioned this contact working out for him, it had just gone sideways on him. I just got the chills. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so what happens next? So, okay, his hands were kind of down by his side. I couldn't see them clearly. Um, and, of course, the first thing now I'm doing is I am starting to, 
I'm going for my gun. So my hand's going onto, the, onto my gun, and the only thing that comes to my mind simply because I can't see his hands clearly is, let me see your hands. So I start issuing commands of basically, let me see your hands, let me see your hands, let me see your hands. And of course, I was using a little bit of colorful language. and uh, um, Understandable. Understandable. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so I'm just, you know, I'm issuing these commands for him to basically just see if he's going to comply with me. Of course, he's not. Um, as I'm starting to draw my gun, he now takes his hands and moves them to the front waistband area of his body. Uh, but I couldn't really tell where exactly he was trying to access because as he's doing this, he is now kind of starting to turn his body away from me, so I can't really see the front of him now. He's kind of presenting in his side, and now he's just trying to start skirting around me or flanking around me. So instead of walking directly up on me, now he's kind of just moving to the side and starting to move around me towards the front of my car. I mean, I told him at least three times, let me see your hands. Um, he was obviously not going to comply with that order. I knew it was Clemens. I knew that he was armed. I felt pretty confident that he was going for a gun. And I know that he had already killed four police officers. So at that point, my gun's out. And I wasn't going to wait to find out what happened next. Right. Well, we know through our training and experience as police officers that in our in waistbands of suspects is where they are known to keep weapons. He's already making a fer fervent movement towards the waistband. So you recognized him immediately as Maurice Clemens. You had everything you need. All of what you described to us up to this point, thinking about it now, um, do you know, were you, did you experience any of the slow motion type of stuff that you read about? Did you, any kind of perceptual distortions that they talk about, maybe tunnel vision or anything like that while this was going on? Or do you think that maybe your military experience kind of washed some of that away so you were able to focus 100% and you were good to go? The, the only thing that I experienced was a little bit of auditory exclusion. Okay. Um, and basically, I mean, everything, nothing slowed down. I didn't really get tunnel vision. When, it, when I started to fire those rounds as he's moving kind of past me now, it sounded like I was at the range with hearing protection on. So they and just kind of went pop. You didn't actually. Yeah, exactly. So they, they weren't big, loud bangs. But yet my mind was processing. I, I, I remember thinking, okay. Even though they don't sound loud to me, I know these rounds, these, these shots are very, very loud, and somebody's going to be calling a shots fired call here pretty shortly. Because, right. I mean, it's 2.30 in the morning. It's just me and Clemens out in the street. The rest of the world is asleep for all I know. There's no other activity going on in the street. There's no other noise going on. And those, shout, those shots were just so distinctive. That, you know, I knew I was waking people up, even though they didn't sound too loud to me. Oh, you hadn't, uh, it, during this whole thing, this whole encounter with Clemens up, up through the, the, the actual shooting, you haven't had time to get on the radio and do any sort of broadcasting, have you? Nope. I mean, well, outside of my initial radio call saying that I found the unoccupied stolen, I, I mean, Literally from the time that I stepped out of my vehicle to the time that I fired my first round was probably in the neighborhood of two or two and a half seconds. Wow. wow. But I think that that in and of itself is a great lesson for police officers and potential police officers that are listening to this because I know and I've seen it happen where you're sitting in your car and somebody makes that approach up to your black and white. And I've seen police officers just sit there and let people walk up to the window of their black and white and not step out of the car. And um, I think if you stood in your car and not gotten out, we might not be having this interview today. I think that was a, a maneuver that saved your life. 
uh, among some of the other things. It's very important to get it out of your car. Yeah, no, I think uh, there's not a doubt in my mind that if I didn't get out and address him at the time that I did, things would have turned out very, very differently. He's down now. You've shot him and he's down. Um, you obviously you put out a broadcast and then pretty much the whole world shows up after that, right? No, not exactly. <laughs> when I first fired, I, I fired a volley of three rounds initially. Um, and I thought I missed because I received no reaction from Clemens whatsoever. He didn't stumble. He didn't expel breath. He didn't say anything. He didn't fall. I mean, nothing other than at this point, he starts running at a full sprint. Wow. Okay. And I was like, I can't believe I missed him because when I first started firing those three rounds, I mean, he was probably in the seven to 10 foot range. So I mean, pretty close. And it just, it was not the reaction that I was expecting. You know, you grow up watching movies and everybody kind of falls victim to the, to the movie fallacies of you shoot somebody and they fall down. Right. So I was really caught off guard that all of a sudden he's now running at a full sprint away from me. And because he's, he, as, you know, as I fired, he was moving around me. He's actually gotten past me at this point, And now he starts to run in between my patrol vehicle and the stolen vehicle and directly towards a yard on the north side of the street. And I could see the yard that he was running to very clearly. And basically it was just a single family residence with a little bit of a front yard that was bordered by a rather large hedge that goes along the entire length of the yard with a sidewalk kind of going out into the street. And of course there was a small gap um, in the hedge for the sidewalk leading into this yard. And that was directly where Clemens was running. So at that point I was like, okay, if I missed him from seven or 10 feet while he was not running, the chances of me hitting him as he's running now uh, as fast as he can away from me is probably pretty slim, but I need to start throwing as many rounds down range as I possibly can, and maybe I'll get lucky. So as he's running to the yard, I fired off four more rounds, but you know he's getting further away from me, and he's moving a lot quicker. And quite honestly, you know, I was a little out of sorts simply because my first three rounds seemed to have missed. So my shooting platform was not ideal. It wasn't the greatest. But like I said, I was like, okay, get as many rounds as you can out, and maybe you can get lucky. And, of course, I didn't. He made it into the yard and around that hedge, and I had completely lost sight of him. I didn't know if he was going to come back around another side, uh, another part of the hedge. I didn't know if he was just running into the backyard of the residence. You know, he could have been anywhere at that point, and I had no idea what his mindset was. So at that point, um, basically trying I, – I never left – the door of my patrol vehicle. I mean, basically when I stopped, stepped out to confront him, he started moving around me and I kind of just tracked him like a tank turret essentially where I stayed in place, but just followed his movements around me. So when he made it to the yard, I kind of used my car for as much cover as I possibly could, which we know is not a lot, but at least I had the vehicle between me and where I had last seen Clemens. It's at this point that I try to get on the radio for the first time. And keep in mind that this whole thing, from the time of me getting out of my patrol vehicle to the point where he's now disappeared, is about four, four and a half seconds. I mean, so it happened quick. So I try to get out on my portable radio um, that we carry with us, on our belt, of course. And I get bumped, which is basically you know, the noise the radio makes when it fails to transmit. You know, this happens from time to time with portable radio, so I immediately try to make another radio transmission. I, you know, I 
let go of the the key on the mic and depress it again and immediately get bonked now for the second time. So since I'm standing in my patrol car door and the door is open, I decide that I will lean into my patrol vehicle while trying to keep eyes up so I can see if Clemens decides to come back. I lean into the patrol vehicle to use my vehicle radio because generally speaking, vehicle radios are a lot more powerful and a lot more reliable than the portable radios. I grab the the car radio mic and press the key and get bonked now for the third time. I'm like, okay. Of all times for your radio not to work. Yes. I mean, it certainly added to the... uh, to the exigency of the circumstances. Yeah. But since I'm already inside my car to a certain degree, well, leaning into my car, I mean, I never went in and got seated or anything like that, but since I'm leaning into my car, the, I, I have a patrol shotgun in my car. So I decided, okay, I'm going to pop the shotgun out because obviously I either missed or had no effect with my handgun rounds, and I just wanted to be prepared. If he does come back, at least I have the shotgun and I was hoping that I could be a little bit more effective with the shotgun. Awesome. So I pull out the shotgun, and I basically just throw it right over the roof of my patrol vehicle, and I start covering down with the shotgun any obvious avenues of approach that Clemens might have if he was to re-engage me. And as I'm doing that, I reach up to my portable radio, and now for the fourth time attempt to get radio, and I was actually able to successfully transmit on that fourth try. And it's funny, I could have sworn I said something different than how I initially, or what I ultimately did say on the radio. I thought it was very funny that uh, if you hear the radio transmission, I ask uh, for acknowledgement, essentially. I get on the radio, and my call sign was 3SAM22, and I get on the radio, and I go, 3SAM22, and I wait for acknowledgement, kind of like almost just testing to make sure that I actually transmitted. Whereas right. in my mind, I thought I immediately just put out shots fired, shots fired, and something along those lines. So I received confirmation back from the dispatcher, yes, that I did transmit, and he's like, okay, 3SAM22, what do you want? So at that point, I'm like, I have shots fired. The suspect from the Lakeway homicides just approached my vehicle and ran off. Um, And at that point, I have everybody's attention. Um, the, The dispatcher asks for clarification where I'm at. And luckily, the house that I'm right in front of has a very obvious and very visible house number on it which was, you know, in police work, that doesn't always work out that way. And right. there are a lot of times where you have no idea what the house number is. So I, I see the house number. I put out the house number um, and give the last direction of travel for Clemens in hopes that uh, units can start, you know, as they're getting here, kind of start setting up containment. And if this guy doesn't come back to re-engage me, at least we can try to contain him into this small area. Um, so I can hear people answering up on the radio. I can hear the sirens starting to, uh, sound off in the distance and I know people are coming my way. So basically I just kind of hunker down and try to cover myself the best I can. I had never wanted to enter my head to go chasing after Clemens. Uh, and, and that's just basically the way that we're trained of, you know, if you're by yourself, you don't go running into an unknown, completely unsupported with no concealment, no cover, especially after an armed, violent offender, because he could just be setting up right on the other side of where you're running. And, you know, you're not going to have a chance. So basically, I'm just hoping to protect myself as best as I can until the cavalry gets there. So I'm sitting there covering all the avenues of approach that I feel are, you know, where he might pop up. And when I look back over to that hedge, and I don't really know exactly what made me look back over there, but I kind of have that distinct memory of going, oh, there's something going on over here. Let me check it out. And I look back to that hedge that he basically ran around right where I last saw him, and now I see him down on the ground. Um, 
he's looking at me, his head's poking around the hedge. I can't see the rest of his body. All I can see is his head, and he's obviously down on the ground, and he's obviously been hit, and he's obviously been hit critically because now he's uh, having a hard time breathing and, you know, kind of going into that death rattle right in front of me. I mean, I didn't even start issuing any commands at that point in time because it was pretty obvious to me that he's not in any condition to comply with any order that I would give him, even if he wanted to. So he's basically he's basically dying right in front of you. Yes. And it turns out now that looking in hindsight, you realize, oh, I actually did hit him. Yes. And so, you know, I get that flood of relief um, where it's like, okay, I, I actually did my job and I did it well and I got a satisfactory result, so, you know, albeit not as immediate as I would have liked it. I, I do know that my rounds uh, found the target and they were effective. So awesome. basically I'm just sitting there holding on him and we're just kind of sitting there looking at each other. Um, you know, what felt like a long time, it was probably, you know, maybe 40 seconds, 45 seconds before the first unit starts to arrive at that point. Um, and once enough units arrived on scene, we kind of formed the contact team. Somebody got a ballistic shield, which is carried in sergeant's cars in Seattle. Uh, obviously a sergeant had arrived on scene. Um, they formed a contact team behind the shield and the contact team went up and basically took Clemens into custody. And the last thing he got to see as he was going out was your face. That's awesome to me. That's that's kind of the way that I like to see it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really like to believe that the last thing that he saw was a cop looking down the barrel of a gun at him. That's beautiful. That is absolutely so, beautiful. So was it, uh, you take him into custody, did did he actually still have the... Uh, the gun on him that it was from the, the Lakewood officer? Yes. He had um, one of the Lakewood officers' service weapon. It was in the pocket of the hoodie that he was wearing. And they actually, the officers that took him into custody had a hard time getting the gun out of the pocket because apparently the gun had hung up on the zipper in some way, shape, or form and was kind of snagged. So, you know, I may have gotten very lucky in that aspect as well. Um, that when he was trying to access the weapon, that it wasn't a clean draw for him, and it actually uh, got caught up in his in the zipper of his hooded sweatshirt. Thank God! Wow. So, uh, so afterwards, um, you're, you're ref- you, you you've had time to reflect on uh, this whole situation. That do you think? there's anything that you would have done differently in the situation? Obviously you said the whole encounter only took a few seconds with the benefit of hindsight. Is there anything you you think you would have done differently or do you think you would have played it exactly the same way? Um, you know, for the most part, I am pretty content with how I reacted. I think I did a lot of things right and a lot of things. Well, I mean, you can always look at it, any situation and say, okay, I could have done this better. Um, you know, I, I think should something like this happen to me again, I'll be a little bit more prepared that, okay, handgun rounds aren't immediately effective, that you can't just expect somebody to, you know, go down just because they're hit. So, you know, I would like to think that I'm more prepared now that, okay, just maintain that good shooting platform, maintain your good shooting uh, principles and, uh, you know, just be prepared that you're going to have to put more rounds downrange than what you may originally anticipate having the need to do. And do you know now that those initial three shots that you fired were all three successful? Did those land on him? Um, there's no way to tell in what order he was hit. So it's, you know, I can't say with any definity what you know, ordered rounds were, but my guess is that all three of those first initial rounds, they were all lethal hits. I took out a lung, you know, both lungs with separate shots, and then I had a through-and-through gut shot with him that, you know, eventually would have been fatal uh, if not treated. Um, So those first three rounds, I'm pretty convinced were, or those those rounds were my first three rounds. I feel pretty confident in. I had one more hit on him as he ran away. That was a through and through in his upper thigh. 
Um, and then, you know, three rounds that obviously didn't hit him. And I'm again, assuming, and I think it's pretty safe to assume that, you know, that that was part of the, the last volley of four. Right. And what, what do you guys carry, uh, in terms of a service weapon up there? Uh, a Glock 22, so Glock 40 caliber. Um, you know, we're using spear, gold dot, uh, hollow point, hydroshock rounds. Um, and, you know, in the autopsy, the rounds proved to be very effective. Did they um, term, did they did come back in any kind of toxicology report? Was he high on anything? Do they think that played into why he ran or was able to run? No, no alcohol, no narcotics, no drugs wow. in his body. Um, the only thing that was in his body prior to me meeting up with him was a round from one of the Lakewood officers. He had actually sustained a shot in his lower back um, during the uh, shooting in Lakewood. Um, and it basically just followed the uh, interior wall of his body. Uh, didn't strike any major organs. It just kind of wrapped around his rib cage, essentially, and embedded in the front of his rib cage. Um, it didn't break any bones. It didn't damage any organs. It just, I mean, he just got really lucky that that shot that he took down in Lakewood was, you know, a minor wound. And it was, it was a bit bizarre, actually. I mean, he had it, he had it taped up with gauze and duct tape. Um, that was his bandage um, when we finally, you know, basically took him into custody. Um, it, it was, it was really bizarre. Um, I mean, the Lakewood round appeared to have functioned the way that it was designed to function. I mean, it expanded and everything like that, but it just, he got lucky, which it always seems like the, the bad ones get, yeah. the, get the luckiest. Well, fortunately for, uh, for you and, and everybody else's, his luck ran out, uh, when he met you. So, uh, yes. That sounds and, uh, a little cheesy. Trust me, but, uh, I, I fully acknowledge that luck that, played into my uh, incident, and I will tell anybody and everybody, okay. you know, hey, it's sometimes it's better to be lucky than good, and I'll take the results. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Enzo, do you have any uh, any other questions for uh, for Ben? Yeah, I was actually just getting into one last question. Was what I know that after the shooting and everything, you were placed on routine administrative leave and all that stuff. What? Besides every other cop in the world worshiping the ground that you walk on, what has been the fallout? What have you taken away from this shooting um, besides the tactical knowledge and all of that? Um, well, you know, it kind of made me realize how things that you do on a regular basis affect more people than you could possibly even fathom. And yes, this was a, a kind of a weird incident that caught a lot of headlines and everything like that. But just kind of realizing that you are important and what that what you do is important and that what you do affects many people's lives. And it doesn't need to be something as drastic as this to uh, for that to happen. And, you know, I felt very, the whole thing was very humbling. And in, in many ways, it made me feel very small as far as, you know, the world that we live in. And I don't know, I mean, it's just a very humbling experience to think that something that you do can reverberate, uh, you know, around the world. And it's kind of an awesome thing to experience. Well, I can tell you, you're um, definitely a hero to a lot of cops out there, because after we heard of that tragedy in Lakewood and uh, the savage behavior of uh, a criminal like that, you know, everybody in the world wanted to hear this guy end up the way he did. And, and you know, it's uh, been humbling experience for me to speak with somebody who was able to uh, have this man meet with the with that end. That's awesome. Well, and, and as you, you know, I don't think that I did anything special or anything different than anybody else would have done in my position. And, you know, it, it becomes very hard to take credit for, you know, 
something one, I fell back completely on training. There was no conscious thought going on in my head. You know, I, I just reacted and it's very hard to take credit for something that you weren't thinking about. You just did. And, you know, I just did my job. I mean, I, I performed a task that I was trained to do while being financially compensated by my employer. And, you know, that's the definition of doing your job. And I know that all cops out there, whatever they do, you know, that's, hey, this is what we get paid to do. I was just doing my job. Absolutely. Well, I think that's going to just about wrap it up here. Um, uh, let me just say, Ben, it's been a, a privilege talking to you. Uh, your your humility is uh, is really uh, something else. And you, 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 you don't want to take credit for anything, but... Let me just uh, take the opportunity to heap as much credit upon you as, as possible. If you, you don't want to do it, yeah, I will. Um, so I just want to say thank you, uh, Ben, for, for joining us for the podcast. Thank you for your service to the people of Seattle. That is going to, to wrap it up. Uh, thank you, Enzo. And be sure to visit uh, policebackground.net for more podcasts and information. And uh, we will see you next time. Thank you very much.